Hello, and welcome to Alert, radio for people who want to change the world. My name is Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. On today's edition of Alert, we will hear from Toronto Star columnist Haroon Siddiqui about the reasons why Canada was denied a seat on the United Nations Security Council. We will welcome back writer and broadcaster Sal Lando. He will speak to us about the coming U.S. congressional elections. And we will explore the controversial economic and trade pact between Canada and the European Union with international trade lawyer and Council of Canadians board member Stephen Schreibman. But first, here are the alert headlines for the week of October 28, 2010. Toronto voters have elected Conservative Rob Ford as mayor of Canada's biggest city, tilting away from their recent liberal leanings and opting for his platform of small government, fewer taxes, and big spending cuts. Ford, a suburban city councillor and businessman, defeated George Smitherman, a former Liberal Party deputy premier of Ontario. Ford drew 47% of the vote compared to Smitherman's 35%, with no other candidate getting more than 12%. Ford capitalized on voter resentment over high taxes and last year's municipal workers strike while generating support for his plans to contract out city services and cut taxes. He vowed to abolish Toronto's vehicle registration tax and land transfer tax. Ford has said he will eliminate a city deficit to create a $1.7 billion surplus within four years and still expand public transit. G20 protest organizer Alex Hundert has been arrested for a third time. Hundert was arrested during the G20 summit in June and then held for three weeks. After his release, he was placed under strict bail conditions that astonished many legal experts in Canada. He was not allowed to speak to the media, he could not participate in any public demonstration or political event, and he wasn't allowed to see his girlfriend without supervision. He was arrested again in September for speaking on a panel discussion at Ryerson University. He was released on October 13th, but arrested again on October 23rd. Police have not revealed any details about why he was re-arrested. Amnesty International says new proposals from the Canadian government to reduce human smuggling flies in the face of the Constitution and at least three international treaties Canada has signed. The Human Rights Advocacy Group says the human smuggling bill violates the 1951 Refugee Convention, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, and the Convention on the Rights of the Child. Amnesty is especially concerned about the bill's provision to put asylum seekers in detention for one year. Alex Nev, Secretary General of Amnesty's Canadian Arm, said that provision is a serious violation of Canada's international and constitutional obligation to not subject people to arbitrary detention. Omar Khadr has pled guilty to murder and war crimes charges in a deal that may allow the Canadian citizen to come home next year. The Harper government, despite its strident denials and years of refusing to intervene, endorsed the deal and made an exchange of diplomatic notes with Washington that should pave the way for Mr. Khadr to serve the remainder of his sentence in Canada beginning next fall. Mr. Khadr agreed to plead guilty in exchange for the Canadian government agreeing to repatriate him back to Canada after one year, said his Canadian lawyer, Dennis Edney. 
Rising food prices and shortages could cause instability in many countries as the cost of staple foods and vegetables reaches their highest levels in two years, with scientists predicting further widespread droughts and floods. The World Bank said that food price volatility would last a further five years and asked governments to contribute to a crisis fund after requests for more than $1 billion from developing countries were made. However, opinions are sharply divided over whether these prices signal a world food crisis like the one in 2008 that helped cause riots in 25 countries. UN Special Rapporteur on the Right to Food, Olivier de Schuter, says a combination of environmental degradation, urbanization, and large-scale land acquisitions by foreign investors for biofuels is squeezing land suitable for agriculture. The United Nations Chief Investigator on Torture, Manfred Nowak, is calling on the Obama administration to order a full investigation of the role of U.S. forces in human rights abuses in Iraq. Nowak's call name after the whistleblowing website WikiLeaks released nearly 400,000 classified U.S. military documents that detail how U.S. forces did nothing to stop reports of abuse, torture, rape, and even murder by Iraqi police and soldiers. In addition, the WikiLeaks war logs show that at least 15,000 more Iraqi civilians have died in Iraq than previously thought. A Mountie from Surrey, B.C. and a Metro Vancouver Transit police officer have been charged with assault in connection with a 73-year-old man who was jolted with a taser after being arrested under the Mental Health Act. The incident happened in April when police responded to a call of a man with a knife causing a disturbance at a home. The man was taken to hospital where he was stunned once by an RCMP taser and suffered facial injuries. Haiti's cholera outbreak may be slowing with fewer cases now being reported, according to health officials. The official death toll has passed 250 with more than 3,000 cases recorded. Health workers have been trying to prevent the disease from spreading to the capital's overcrowded tent cities where hundreds of thousands of people live in unsanitary conditions. Five cases were recorded in the capital, Port-au-Prince. UN humanitarian coordinator Nigel Fisher told Reuters news agency they were preparing for the possibility of a serious epidemic. The Indian government has announced a new 223 million US dollar welfare scheme that it said will benefit more than 1 million pregnant and breastfeeding women across the country. In order to be eligible for the program, women must receive regular health checkups. They will then be given about 270 US dollars over 6 months sent directly into their bank accounts. The scheme aims to fight maternal mortality in India, which has one of the highest rates in the world. The United Nations estimates that 1,000 women die every day in India due to pregnancy-related problems. Bolivia is set to get its own port on the coast of the Pacific Ocean after 126 years without direct access to the sea. The landlocked country signed an agreement with neighboring Peru to expand a previous deal that had granted a five-kilometer strip of land on the Peruvian coastline to Bolivia in 1992. The new deal, which will give Bolivia great access to global markets, allows the country to build a port, establish a free trade zone, and operate an annex of its navy school. The country lost its access to the sea when Chile conquered the mineral-rich land of the Atacama Desert 
in the 1879-1884 War of the Pacific. Those were the alert headlines for this week. And now for Around the Left in Seven Days for the week of October 28, 2010. Canadians for Justice and Peace in the Middle East is sponsoring a five-city speaking tour with American scholar Norman Finkelstein from October 26th to 30th. Finkelstein has devoted much of his adult life to the achievement of a just peace between Israel and Palestine. Tour stops will include Montreal on October 26th, Ottawa on the 27th, Toronto on the 28th, Edmonton on the 29th, and Vancouver on the 30th. In all cities, Dr. Finkelstein will deliver a lecture entitled Israel and Palestine, Past, Present, and Future. Visit cjpme.org for more information. Picket the opening of the second annual Halifax International Security Forum at the Westin Hotel, Hollis and South Street in Halifax on November 6th. This year's Security Forum is particularly important as it takes place less than two weeks prior and as a lead-up to the NATO summit of heads of state. Last year's rally against this war conference was a big success. Besides voicing strong opposition to NATO, the war in Afghanistan and the presence in our city of these militarists, people were very pleased with the renaming of Cornwallis Genocide Park as the Halifax Peace and Freedom Park. Meet at the Weston Hotel at 1 o'clock p.m. In April 2010, in Cochabamba, Bolivia, the government of Bolivia convened a conference of social movements to confront the challenge of global warming. More than 30,000 participants outlined a blueprint to chart a path towards climate justice and to defend the rights of Mother Earth. The Toronto-Bolivia Solidarity Group will be hosting a teach-in on the lessons from Bolivia on November 13th. The teach-in will outline the Cochabamba Declaration, discuss how we can implement the Cochabamba Agenda in Canada, and will strategize how environmental injustice in our communities can be resisted. Admission is $10 or pay what you can. The teach-in begins at 10 o'clock a.m. and will be held at Sydney Smith Hall in Toronto. York University will be hosting a conference this weekend, October 29th to 31st, entitled Capital as Power, Crisis of Capital, Crisis of Theory. Speakers include Leo Panich and David McNally discussing the crisis of capital and theory and Jonathan Nitzan on capital as power, among many others. The conference will be held in York Lanes at York University. As migrant workers continue to die, labor activists and community groups must gather together to reignite a new fight. A fight that creates far-reaching changes and challenges the very root of people's inability to access real safety, immigration status, and racism. Join community groups and labor activists on November 4th at the OPSEU Union Hall in Toronto to discuss and demand a moratorium on deportations for all workers with workplace safety claims and the Ministry of Labor complaints. Access to health and safety without fear, status for injured workers and their families, and status for all. Meet at the OPSEU Union Hall at 6 o'clock p.m. For more information, email noonisillegal at riseup.net. Gentrification impacts communities the world over. In city after city, 
Real estate and rising land values displace existing communities, only to be replaced by high-end condos, unaffordable stores, and poor-bashing organizations. Right to the City is a two-day conference in Vancouver that will open a space for discussion of the role of police and courts in facilitating gentrification, analyze the relationship between art, philanthropy, and developers, and highlight Woodward's and the Olympic Village as sites of struggle. The conference will be held at Vivo Media Arts Center on November 5th and 6th. Admission is by donation. For more information, go to vancouver.mediacoop.ca. That was Around the Left in Seven Days for the week of October 28th, 2010. Coming up, Michael will be speaking with Haroon Siddiqui, Toronto Star columnist. We're joined on the line right now from Toronto by Haroon Siddiqui. Uh, Haroon Siddiqui is an award-winning journalist and uh, Toronto Star columnist. So, Haroon, you recently wrote uh, in your column uh, about why Canada was rejected by the uh, United Nations. Could you maybe list uh, the reasons why uh, Canada was rejected? Yeah, you see, I mean, we can list those, but... The, I think the first thing to say is to put it in the proper context, which is that this was the first time in the 64-year history of the United Nations that Canada failed to win a council seat. And we had won it five times before quite handily, and this was, this was the first time that we were rejected, and we were rejected so massively that it was described as what, as, as an embarrassment, as a shocking development, as a disaster, as a diplomatic fiasco, as humiliation and shame on the world stage, and all of it is true, you know. And then we get into your question as to why this has happened. I mean, it's not a great mystery why this has happened. Uh, there's a whole list of reasons. I mean, a lot of people have said this is because of the Stephen Harper government's uh, blind support of Israel um, that has made Canada a pariah at the United Nations. But that's not really so, because there are so many other reasons. If you recall that this government sabotaged the United Nations Climate Accord, um, it decried the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of the Indigenous Peoples, it downgraded United Nations peacekeeping uh, down to now a mere 160 Canadian soldiers out of what? Out of more than 105,000 worldwide, which has now placed Canada 57th uh, in world rankings of peacekeepers behind Yemen and Uganda. I mean, who would have thought we would be behind Uganda and Yemen when it comes to our contributions to peacekeeping? Uh, which is what uh, Lester B. Pearson won a Nobel Peace Prize for, for inventing peacekeeping. So you're saying that basically the, uh, the, the it's not just that there is one or two or three reasons, it was just all a combination a of all of those. A combination of reasons, you know. I mean, uh, the reasons continue that uh, under this government, uh, uh, our role at the United Nations and its agencies has been uh, diminished. You recall um, uh, sometime early this year that the Canadian government 
uh, diverted the Canadian funds that used to go to the United Nations Relief and Work Agency to the Palestinian uh, to the Palestinian people. This government diverted it to the Palestinian authorities, Mahmoud Abbas, because he is the Israel's uh, and America's favored interlocutor, as opposed to giving money to a UN agency, which we have historically done. Um, you also remember that this is the same government that has consistently thwarted a probe into alleged torture of Afghan detainees. I mean, what is the connect? What is the relevance of this point? Is that uh, torture, alleged torture of anyone, uh, is a violation of the Geneva Accord? And one would have thought a Canadian government would want to be eager to uh, a avert it and b if in fact it did happen that we would want to know all about it, you know. And, of course, there is a famous case of Omar al-Qadr, which is going on in Guantanamo Bay, and it's playing out. Um, this government has not lifted a finger for him. Is and this is not to go to bat for Omar al-Qadr or his bad deeds, but simply that uh, this government was defending the policy of indefinite detention, um, as well as the American military's kangaroo court. I mean, this is, these are not the kinds of policies that lend themselves to um, being looked up to at the United Nations. That's what I'm saying. Well, look, what about the, the countries? Maybe are, are there some qu- countries we could point to that would normally support us, that uh, deserted us this time? No, no, you see, I mean, you, you remember what the government said. The government said... Um, uh, it must be the fault of the Europeans because uh, they must have voted as a bloc. Um, maybe they did, maybe they didn't. You know, nobody really knows for sure. Um, uh, here it is that the members voted for Portugal, which is not even a member of the G20, let alone a G8 country like we are, you know. Um, but pointing the finger at Europe does not quite resolve the issue, you know, because Europe has, what, less than 30 votes, whereas the Arab and Muslim nations have 57, uh, and they have reasons to be angry at Canada uh, for uh, the our policies on the Middle East and so on, including the fiasco with the United Arab Emirates, where you know, you have heard that the UAE has cancelled um, our lease or our arrangements to use one of their air bases for Canadian troops to be going in and out of Afghanistan. And why did they do that? Because they have been wanting more landing rights for their civilian aircraft in Canada, the Ittihad Airways and uh, Emirate Airways. But this is not to, not to talk about that particular issue, but UAE had good reason probably to vote against Canada. Um, and, and I'm not saying that to either support them or criticize them one way or the other, but just to say that there are 57 Arab and Muslim nations that could possibly have voted for us, against us. And Africa has 51 votes, you know, and they too have good reasons because the uh, Harper government did, um, uh, did reduce the aid that we give to some of the African countries. So there's a whole list of people who could have voted against us, and obviously many of them did, you know. Uh, Haroon, much has been made of the fact that the United States did not advocate for Canada uh, as aggressively as it could have, uh, if at all. Um, What difference might uh, the United States have made in terms of getting uh, getting us a seat? I mean, I I don't see, I mean, uh, obviously it's relevant when you have the United States um, 
going to bat for you, but United States uh, doesn't have too many friends left. It's busy remaking friends uh, with with the world. You remember what happened during the George W. Bush presidency, having um, offended so many um, allies and friends and so on, that uh, President Obama has been slowly but effectively trying to mend these fences. So America is not in such a great position to have gone to bat for us. Had they done so, obviously it would have made some difference, but they chose not to, and one can only speculate why they did not want to do so, because either they they themselves do not value Canada's presence in the Security Council, or they have no great feel for what Canada is doing at this point, either by way of record on human rights, multilateralism, United Nations activities, and so on. Or three, that they say, you know, look, we have... We have to worry about ourselves at this point vis-a-vis the United Nations. So it's really a matter of speculation as to why that happened. And and I suspect even if they had, it would not have made a difference because when you can garner only 70-odd votes, you know, when you out of, out of, what, 180, 190 members, you're in trouble. You know that just America saying go vote for Canada would not have done it for us. Uh, Haroon, what could Canada possibly do to restore this uh, its reputation now that it seems to have been pretty badly damaged? I mean, just go back to the list that um, I enunciated. I mean, we need to fix all of those things. Canada has, has had a long um, and proud history of being an active member of the United Nations, has had a long, um, proud history of are working for multilateralism, for multilateral institutions, for multilateral solutions. Um, It was the nation that proudly took the leading role in the establishment of the International Criminal Court, the Landmines Treaty, um, the agreement on blood diamonds. Um, These are all activities that one way or the other related to the protection of human rights for people around the world. Um, We no longer have that kind of reputation, and we need to go back to doing all of those things that won us that kind of a reputation. And there's obviously no quick fix here, and what is probably not generally realized that this turn comes every 10 years or so, so we have lost our turn for the next 10 years, you know. I mean, this is extraordinary, um, extraordinarily embarrassing and shocking and, and shameful. I mean, there's no other way of saying it. Well, Haroon Siddiqui, I want to thank you very much for your insights and for joining us. On My pleasure. Haroon Siddiqui is an award-winning journalist and a member of the Order of Canada. Saul Landau is an award-winning filmmaker, writer, and broadcaster, and a member of the Canadian Dimension Collective. He is a frequent guest on Alert. Welcome back to Alert. How are you? Good. Thank you for having me. No problem. So we're going to ask you a little bit about the U.S. congressional elections next week. Uh, first, what do, you, what do you see happening next week? Well, all the predictions are that the Democrats are going to take a real bad beating in the House and may hang on to the Senate. Um, I have um, some more optimistic um, ideas. I think they may hold both houses, not by a lot, but I think that uh, hopefully some people will wake up uh, and start being driven by facts rather than by the baloney that has been filling the airwaves 
and the uh, media uh, as I've never seen it before. I mean, this is a campaign funded by billionaire Republicans who have financed these Tea Party affairs and are spreading lies. Um, you know, I would say the Guinness Book of Records is going to get overflowed if, if they gave award for liars this year. <laughs> Um, so, in your opinion, if the Republicans do gain a majority in the House or the Senate, um, what kind of difference do you see it making um, in the direction of U.S. domestic and foreign policy? Well, I think it will drive both um, in bad directions. I mean, I think uh, Obama has, well, let me start by saying that, you know, people are saying that in, in the Kenyan language, Obama means disappointing. <laughs> but I I don't know how else to say it other than, you know, may, maybe medical science will come up with a cure for people almost 50 years old who have undescended testicles. I don't know how to <laughs> put it any other way. But above and beyond that, the Democrats may have been bad, but they're not as bad as the Republicans are painting them. And uh, the Republicans are far worse than anything I have yet witnessed uh, in the sense that they really don't stand for anything. I can't put my finger on anything they want other than the old uh, saw, which is lower the taxes of the people who have the most money and can most afford to pay them. Other than that, and, you know, God slogans. Well, I mean, put it a different way. The Republicans are a real political party. They represent the extremely rich and the soldiers of God. Uh, the Democrats, I don't know if you'd call them a political party, because how can you represent landlords and tenants bosses and workers, environmentalists and polluters, you know, interventionists and, and uh, doves, and all have them all inside the same party and be for Wall Street and Main Street. So I don't know if it's a party or a money laundering machine, <laughs> but they're better than the Republicans are, and I hope that they do better than the pollsters are predicting. And to do so, they've really got to get their facts out quickly, because the Republicans have dominated the airwaves with lies. So, if you want me to go into some of those, I could. <laughs> well, wh I want to talk a little bit about this kind of shift to the far right that we're kind of seeing take place now. Do you, do you think this is like a passing phenomenon, or do you think it represents more of like a long-term change? Well, if, it, if it's a long-term change, it's a passing phenomenon for, the human, for human life in the world. <laughs> I put it that way. <laughs> somebody says, you know, a climate change, that's a lie. Um, you know, look, the fact is that this is um, a narrow policy as, uh, well, as narrow a, uh, a political interest as one could ever imagine. They only really want one thing, more money for themselves. Republicans want less taxes and fewer problems with their servants and labor force. That, that's it. And in order to do that, they will say all kinds of things. They'll even line up with, you know, the anti-abortionists, although they're sending their daughters to get abortions all the time. So uh, that's essentially what it is. And, of course, it's not going to be good for the future of this country to have certifiably insane people occupying posts in the U.S. Senate and House, which will happen if some of those Republicans win. Mm -hmm. People who are witches... You know, people who are who do believe in satanic rights, you know, who believe uh, some of them don't believe in evolution and so on. I mean, this is the kind of people where you say, holy mackerel, how can we do this? I mean, even Sarah Palin, who 
rarely can put together an American, uh, uh, an English sentence if it's not put on some reader for her. Um, she, even she stands above some of the new candidates who uh, want to privatize Social Security, destroy Medicare, get rid of public schools, and so on. I mean, yes. This is Looney Tunes, but I don't know. It's the weird you know, phenomenon of where science and technology is leaping higher and higher, and human thought seems to get lower and lower when it's involved, involved with politics or social affairs. Okay, well, we've got time for about one more question. Um, so we definitely want to ask you about the California referendum on marijuana. Um, where's the legalization initiative coming from? Do you think it's going to pass? Well, it's coming from uh, the pot interest, <laughs> and it's coming <laughs> from some doctors and, uh, you know, some, I would say, marijuana missionaries. <laughs> Is it going to pass? I hope it passes. Um, <laughs> you know, I can take my puff in peace, so to speak, <laughs> but uh, I don't think it will. I think the um, the the voters uh, are going to turn it down, really for stupid reasons. Uh, but uh, and the the campaign, you know, the religious forces are against it. Not all law enforcement is against it, but certainly the prison guards union is against it, and all those people who want to keep the prisons full are against <laughs> it. But. Uh, you know, it makes no sense. In 1938, marijuana or cannabis was the most widely prescribed substance uh, in pharmacy. I know this because my father was a pharmacist, and he said it not only was the only remedy for glaucoma, but, you know, cancer patients, post-op patients, people with uh, poor appetites, people with anxiety, uh, people who were in constant pain. So every, this was taken for almost everything. And then Harry Anslinger of the FBI Narcotics Division figured he could get a bit bigger office and more and on his payroll if he could declare it a dangerous drug, and he did. And since that time, so many people have gone to prison for standing on the corner and taking one hit off of a joint, and it's ridiculous. But, um, you know, H.L. Mencken said, um, no one ever went broke underestimating the intelligence of the American public. <laughs> I think on that note, we'll uh, leave it there for today. Thanks for speaking with us, Saul. Saul Landau is an award-winning filmmaker, writer, and broadcaster, and a frequent guest on Alert. I'm speaking with Stephen Schreibman. He is an international uh, trade lawyer who has done a recent report on uh, the uh, legal opinion on the uh, Comprehensive Economic and Trade Agreement, and uh, he's joining us uh, right now. So, uh, so good afternoon, uh, Stephen Schreiberman, and welcome to Alert. Uh, thank you, Michael. Uh, pleasure to be interviewed. So, uh, could you tell us first of all uh, the the history that we've seen so far, as far as these trade agreements, like uh, NAFTA, for instance, and the way these. Uh, uh, things like investor-state mechanisms can be used to um, undermine social and environmental and other policies. Uh, does does this have any? Is there any res- anything in the current uh, economic and trade pact that uh, resembles that? Yeah, I think the you know the proposed free trade agreement with Europe is just in a way more of the same, um, though there are some important. Uh, advances 
that um, this neoliberal agenda would make if we actually enter into this agreement with, with Europe. And when I use the term neoliberal, I mean uh, the agenda of privatization, deregulation, and free trade. Um, and free trade really is just another type of deregulation. And it's often common for people to think about trade agreements as, well, to begin with, about trade, when really since 1986 they've been um, um, more um, about uh, domestic regulation uh, than they have been about the flow of goods across international borders. And, you know, one of the first things that it's important for people to understand about these regimes is that they're not trade agreements in any sense that people would conventionally understand the term trade because, because the envelope of what it's fair to talk about in the context of an international trade agreement has been radically expanded, first with the free trade agreement between Canada and the United States and then with NAFTA, and subsequently with the World Trade Organization to include virtually everything that governments do, no matter how local uh, in character. So, uh, you know, if your local municipality uh, passes an ordinance having to do with the siting of a hazardous waste disposal site, that's something that now can become fodder for an international dispute, and we've seen that happen under NAFTA investment rules or uh, a local bylaw. Uh, restricting the use of pesticides on lawns or a provincial measure to prohibit the disposal of municipal waste in a particular type of, uh, of environment uh, or an attempt by uh, a province to zone land in a particular way. All of those things, all of those things that governments do and we expect them to do in terms of regulating um, private and commercial activity in the public interest or providing services like health care and water services uh, can be seen from a private investor's point of view as an interference in the market as some type of um, uh, intrusion uh, into the profit-making activity of that enterprise. If I can't uh, dispose of waste in a particular in, uh, situation, I'm being robbed of my uh, advantage to make, or my uh, my uh, my right, arguably, to make a return on that type of investment. So uh, everything is looked at skeptically under these regimes. Everything that governments do is looked at skeptically. And the essential thrust and theory of free trade is that really we should uh, uh, let the market take care of virtually everything that the market can take care of. And for the proponents of free trade, that's virtually everything. There's very little that happens in society that the proponents of free trade or this neoliberal agenda of privatization and deregulation and free trade uh, don't believe um, uh, should be left to, uh, to government. They, they think it should be left to the market. So th that's what these agreements are about. And, you know, whether they've been... A, what people feel about them, I mean, should be informed by how they feel governments have performed since these agreements have been in place. Okay, if, if what you're saying is that this is essentially corporations looking to uh, get through uh, government regulation in order to secure their prosperity, what are Canadian corporations getting out of it, and what are the European corporations getting out of it? Well, I, I think, you know, what, what Europe, I, I, I think for Canada, the seat is really a political uh, project. 
Uh, it's a way for, you know, Charest decided to take this on for, in service of his ambitions to become more of a, in a sense, a presence uh, on the international stage. Uh, I mean, there's nothing that Canadian businesses get out of this is the short answer. So why is it the governments are pursuing this is the question. And the question, and I think the answer to that is because it, Canada is pursuing it because it s serves the political ambitions and appetites or the ideological kind of inclinations of certain uh, politicians. Uh, and um, they're able to persuade their colleagues to come along with some very kind of broad notions of uh, free trade being a path to prosperity, even though that's not established or never has been demonstrated. Uh, but playing to generally the general ignorance about uh, what these agenda is about and, and, and what uh, depriving government of, it, of its service delivery and regulatory authority ultimately means in terms of progress and, and prosperity in society. For Europeans uh, responding to this, in a sense, overture from Canada, because at first they're reluctant and then I think they become uh, kind of aware of the fact that Canada just might pay a very significant, be willing to pay a very significant economic price in order for the political gain they may get out of uh, entering into this agreement. Uh, Europe says, okay, well, what have you got to offer? And what really Canadian governments have to offer, what they have left after NAFTA and the WTO, is local government procurement. I mean by local, provincial, and, and municipal government procurement. So this is, procurement is an esoteric term, I'm sure, for most people. But all it means is that, you know, when your city decides to put in a transit system, uh, where who's going to make the streetcars? You know, when when uh, your provincial government or provincial utility decides that it wants to meet the electricity service needs of the people in the province, is it going to, and it wants to shift to more renewable power sources and build windmills and put up windmills and put in photovoltaic cells, who's going to make the windmills and who's going to install them and who's going to service them? Um, and uh, that's procurement. Uh, and under this regime, uh, it would not be possible for Canadian governments to uh, prefer um, uh, Canadian companies and when it comes to making those streetcars or providing those windmills or uh, providing the food services at the local hospital. They would have to throw the door open to foreign service providers with respect to those services or the acquisition of those goods. And um, not only would they have to, not only would they be precluded from providing a preference for, lo for, for a local company, but they cannot stipulate as a condition of the procurement, let's say you put out a contract, you want to build a subway or you want to build a la light ra rail line in your city. So there's a lot of goods and services that go into doing that. There's the design of the system, there's the making of the hardware, there's all of the construction activity associated with putting the system in place. There's maintenance. There's a lot of there are a lot of goods and services that are uh, that make up that that project, and you're not allowed to, as a condition of your procurement, say, okay, well, you can bid on this wherever you happen to be in the world, but we want if you're not making the streetcars in Canada, we want them to be assembled here, or we want a certain 
amount of domestic content to go into the hard goods you're going to provide or the maintenance services for those facilities they're going to be performed in Canada so you can bid on this as a Japanese company or a Chinese company or a European company but there are going to be certain domestic content and servicing requirements you can't do that either under these rules now you know it may be that a municipality from time to time is happy to go that way um, but this would preclude uh, a municipality or a province from ever in, and in any case I mean there's some exceptions but they're very narrowly defined from kind of stipulating those types of local preferences why this is important is this is about the only tool that governments now have left to stimulate local economic activity and after all if you're spending my money and putting in a subway system why wouldn't I want you to spend my money buying goods and services for me to use and in the process stimulate um, economic development in my community so that it's more prosperous and there are more people paying taxes and there's more money to support those goods and services. Of course I'd want you to do that. But under this construct, this neoliberal construct, uh, always the market. Uh, the market uber alles. Uh, and anything that interferes with that notion has to be uh, wiped away. Well, uh, on that note, I'd like to thank you, Stephen Schreibman, for uh, sharing your concerns about this uh, uh, special trade pact, or investment pact, or whatever you want to call it. Uh, my pleasure. Stephen Schreibman is a, a, board, a board member on the Council of Canadians and an international uh, trade lawyer. Hi, this is Music is a Weapon, I'm Mitch Podolik, and this week's show is about anthems, all kinds of anthems. Not quite national anthems, because I don't quite like national anthems, but anthems about human liberation, anthems about revolution, anthems about the struggle of the labor movement, all kinds of anthems. So, here to start is Ottawa's finest kind with the Maple Leaf Forever. In days of yore to this wild shore French and British strangers came and planted firm Their conquerors' flags where native peoples reigned In struggle and in hope they forged a nation here together that there might wave so proud and free the maple leaf forever. Through bitter wars in freedom's cause, brave Canadians fought and died. Now we, their children, guard the peace where hate and war divide. We'll not break faith with glory's past. The torch we'll lower never. A shining light to all the world. The maple leaf forever. From Arctic land to Great Lake Strand. Bay despair to Nootka Sound, may patriot love unite us and true commonwealth be found. 
And may Canadians new and old uphold the great endeavor and proudly wave from sea to sea the maple leaf forever. The maple leaf, our emblem dear, the maple leaf forever and proudly wave from sea to sea the maple leaf forever. She went down last October in a pouring, driving rain. The skipper he'd been drinking and the mate he felt no pain. Too close to Three Mile Rock and she was dealt her mortal blow. And the Mary Ellen Carter settled low. There was just us five aboard her when she finally was awash. We'd worked like hell to save her, all heedless of the cost. And the groan she gave as she went down It caused us to proclaim That the Mary Ellen Carter would rise again Well, the owners rode her off Not a nickel would this man She gave twenty years of service Boys that met her sorry end But insurance paid the loss to us So let her rest below then they laughed at us and said we had to go But we talked of her all winter, some days around the clock She's worth a quarter million afloat and at the dock And with every jar that hit the bar we swore we would remain And make the Mary Ellen Carter rise again Rise again, rise again Let her name not be lost to the north those who loved her best and were with her till the end will make the Mary Ellen Carter rise again. All spring now we've been with her on a barge lent by a friend. Three dives a day in a hard hat suit and twice I've had the bends. Thank God it's only 60 feet and the currents here are slow Or I'd never have the strength to go below But we patched her rents, stopped her men's dog patch and portal down Put cables to her fore and aft and girded her around Tomorrow noon we hit the air and then take up the strain And make the Mary Ellen Carter rise again Rise again, rise again Let her name not be lost to the knowledge of men All those who loved her best And were with her till the end Will make the merry other Carter rise again
leave her there, you see, to crumble into scale. She'd saved our lives so many times, living through the gale, and the laughing drunken rats who left her to a sorry grave. They won't be laughing in another day. And you, to whom adversity has dealt the final blow, with smiling bastards lying to you everywhere you go, turn to and put out all your strength of arm and heart and brain, and like the merry Ellen Carter, rise again, rise again, rise again. Though your heart be broken on life about to end, no matter what you've lost, be it a home, a love, a friend, like the Mary Ellen Carter, rise again, rise again, rise again. Though your heart it be broken or life about to end, no matter what you've lost, be it a home, a love, a friend, like the Mary Ellen Carter, rise again. That was Mary Ellen Carter with Canada's great folk hero, Stan Rogers, and before that, finest kind from Ottawa singing the Maple Leaf Forever. One of my favorite songs of all time is an Irish nationalist song called Oro Shea Baha Blew me away the first time I heard it. I was at a Clancy Brother concert, and all of a sudden they start singing it, and the whole audience got up and started singing it. So here it is, Oro Shea Baha She the Vaha Van Bolinbor, the Bear Grach to Vehin Yeven, the Guhi Vrave Shell of Merla, his to deal Talishna Gaula.
very famous Italian communist song, Bandiera Rosa, sung in French, and before that, the Irish nationalist song, Oro Shela Bahawelia. Well, I guess probably as a kid, the first thing I did was learn labor anthems, all kinds of them, all tons and tons and tons of them. So here to start is The Banks Are Made of Marble. I've traveled around this country From shore to shining shore It really made me wonder The things I heard and saw I saw the weary farmer A plowing sod and loam I heard auction hammer just a knocking down his home but the banks are made of marble with a guard at every door and the bolts are stuffed with silver that the farmer sweated for I've seen the seamen standing idly by the shore And I heard their bosses saying Got no work for you no more But the banks are made of marble With a guard at every door and the bolts are stuffed with silver that the seamen sweated for. I've seen the weary miner scrubbing coal dust from his back. 
And I've heard his children crying Got no coal to heat the shack But the banks are made of marble With a guard at every door And the vaults are stuffed with silver That the miners sweated for I've seen my brothers working Throughout this mighty land I've prayed we'd get together And together make a stand Then we might own those banks of marble With a guard at every door And we would share those vaults of silver That we have sweated for. There once was a union maid, she never was afraid. Of goons and ginks and company thinks And the deputy sheriffs who made the raid She went to the union hall When a meeting it was called And when the legion boys come round She always stood her ground Oh, you can't scare me I'm sticking to the union I'm sticking to the union I'm sticking to the union Oh, you can't scare me I'm sticking to the union I'm sticking to the union This union maid was wise to the tricks of company spies. She couldn't be fooled by a company stool. She'd always organize the guys. She'd always get her way when she struck for better pay. She'd show her card to the National Guard, and this is what she'd say. Oh, you can't scare me. I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union. Oh, you can't scare me. I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union till the day I die. You gals who want to be free, just take a tip from me. Get you a man who's a union man and join the ladies' auxiliary. Married life ain't hard when you got a union card. A union man has a happy life when he's got a union wife. Oh, you can't scare me. I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union. That was Woody Guthrie's most famous anthem, The Union Made. And before that, Les Rice's The Banks Were Made of Marble. And that's it for this week, folks. Keep on picking. Keep it going. Well, that's our show for this week. Thanks for being with us. We'll be here next week at this time. If you would like to send us a comment, write to alert at canadiandimension.com. To hear this show again, or to hear any of our past shows, go to the Canadian Dimension website at canadiandimension.com and select alert. The show is also podcast on rabble.ca. 
The executive producer of Alert is Canadian Dimension publisher Saigonic. Technical producer is Tommy Allen, assisted by Selena Serbinuk. Alert headlines by Chris Webb. Seven Days Around the Left, prepared by Ben Wood. Music is the Weapon by Mitch Podolik. I'm Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. Alert Radio is a production of Canadian Dimension magazine.